Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. From the High Center Studios of Messiah College amidst the smoke machines and amplifiers of Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome, everyone, to episode 38 of the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast. Well, Drew, this is our last episode of season four. Indeed it is, and I think we can, I, I, I'm, I feel like it's safe to say we've done work that we can be proud of. I we've think had, so, yeah. We've had some big changes on the podcast, of course, joining the Recorded History Podcast Network, but first and foremost, we've had some great guests. We have. Amy Bass was on to talk about Somali refugees and high school soccer. Nancy McLean came to discuss her work on libertarianism. Pulitzer winner Frances Fitzgerald discussed her book, The Evangelicals. And of course, most recently, Kevin Cruz and Aaron Bartram both gave us different takes on the status of higher ed in the 21st century. Today, I think we're going out with a bang, Drew. Our guest today is Randall Stevens. He's the author of a great new book just out with Harvard University Press titled The Devil's Music, How Christians Inspired, Condemned, and Embraced Rock and Roll. That's right. Randall's going to talk about everything from the religious roots of rock and roll to the rise of Jesus rock in the 1960s and 1970s. Yeah, I just finished the book last night. It's a fascinating study, really at the intersection of American Christianity, American religious history, American cultural history, pop culture. If you're into the Beatles, if you're into Christian rock, if you're into Elvis Presley, it's all there in this book. It, it, it really is a, uh, is, a, is a great piece of scholarship and also very accessible. So let's talk a little music here, Drew. You're in a band. Who are some of your musical influences? Well, uh, I've been in I've been in a number of bands, all of which had different particular musical influences. But I, I think personally, as a musician, I've probably been most influenced by folk music, yeah. broadly conceived. Whether that be the protest music and this kind of stuff, I grew up on the protest music of Woody Guthrie or Pete Seeger or uh, more contemporary artists like Sufjan Stevens, the Mountain Goats, Bonnie Prince Billy, and as the bassist in Overholt, you know, the, the artist behind much of our original music here on the podcast, we were strongly influenced by roots rock bands like Wilco or My Morning Jacket, 
But you should know, John, that when you ask a musician for their influences, you are asking them to engage in an exercise in obscure hipster name dropping. So I'll I won't go too in depth because I could go on for a while. Yeah, I also I also realize how old I feel since I knew about maybe half of the bands that that you just mentioned. Yeah, and those are the ones that my mom used to listen to. So. <laughs> right? Okay. Now I know, Drew, you come from more of a mainline Protestant background. So I'm wondering if you ever went through any phase or period where you actually listened to Christian rock or Christian contemporary music. Well, I'm I'm not just from a mainline denomination. I'm also like from a very high church background. Right, right. So for me, church music always required an organ and a choir. And if you're going to be really radical on a Sunday, you might do an offertory that used a piano. Like that right, was the okay. scandalous Sunday yeah, in my sure. church growing up. Episcopalian, um, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Christian rock, especially the notion that there's a Christian alternative for any popular secular band was new to me when I arrived at, at Messiah College. And I, I never felt any guilt about the music I listened to. You know, I'm a bit younger than you are, John. So I was raised mostly after the so-called satanic panic had subsided. <laughs> so, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a household where there was any concern about the influence of right. secular music. And I loved listening to my mom's old records, Led Zeppelin, Cat Stevens, CSNY being some of my favorites. But I did, you know, to get back to your original question, I did embrace Christian music a bit when I first arrived on campus here as a first year student at Messiah. You know, I was going through this phase where I was trying to figure out where I fit in in this larger, broader, more, you know, evangelical community as a, as a Messiah student. And, of course, at the time, Christian rock and roll was all we were allowed to play on the, uh, on the campus radio station. So I familiarized myself with many of these bands during that, that period. How about you, John? Well, again, I'm going to show my age here. I mean, I grew up in the 1970s listening to a lot of popular music, usually spun by the likes of Harry Harrison, Ron Lundy, and Dan Ingram. Some of you are from New York. You will recognize those names immediately. The DJs on 77 WABC in New York City. It's now a talk radio station. Uh, I also listened to a lot of classic rock on WDHA, which was a local FM station near my town. Most of the album rock or classic rock was played on FM when I was growing up, and the more pop stuff was on AM. So my FM listening is where I got doses of Springsteen, Led Zeppelin, and a lot of progressive rock bands I used to listen to, like Kansas and Rush. And then I converted to evangelicalism in the early 1980s, and my music interests became much more complicated. And that's something I'm going to talk about a little bit more in my commentary in a way that kind of dovetails with uh, the story Randall Stevens tells in his book. That's great. I'm really looking forward to hearing a little bit more about your your history as a, you know, when you either left and re-embraced Bruce Springsteen. Right. I've been hearing about Bruce a lot ever since I became friends with you. But first, let's take care of some business. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a proud member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Head to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. This week, I'd encourage you to check out the History of Literature podcast. Mm. If you want to take a deep dive into the context of the world's great authors, this is the podcast for you. Our podcast is brought to you through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, and Gretchen Adams. And as always, many thanks to Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. If you want to become a sponsor of the show, please head over to thewayofimprovement.com and click support. And the best way to spread the word about the podcast is to take it to social media. So again, follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast, all one word, on Twitter and Facebook. 
and consider giving us a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're downloading this podcast. Yeah, and once again, thank you. As I always say every every episode, thank you so much for all of you who do share our work, tell your friends about what we're doing, download episodes on iTunes, and especially those patrons out there who have given so generously during Season 4. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. I hope you'll stay with us into Season 5. So again, we're just so pleased with the with the listenership we've been able to develop here. We want to kind of build it. We think we're doing a good thing here and offering a good service here at the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. So I hope you'll you'll connect with us in one of the ways that Drew just mentioned. Before we get to Randall Stevens, you have a story for us, John. As a working kid growing up in an Italian and Slovakian family in northern New Jersey, the soundtrack of my life was mostly broadcast through a transistor radio, the car radio, or the portable radio, rabbit ears included, that my parents kept on the kitchen counter. This meant that I spent a lot of time listening to popular music. On AM radio, there was the Bee Gees, Rod Stewart, Andy Gibb, Paul McCartney and Wings, Donna Summer, Carly Simon, Gloria Gaynor, The Beatles, The Carpenters, Diana Ross, John Denver, Eric Clapton, Stevie Wonder, Lionel Richie, Elton John, Barry Manilow, The Eagles, The Bay City Rollers, KC and the Sunshine Band, Daryl Hall and John Oates, and The Knack, their one-hit wonder, remember, My Sharona. On FM radio, there was Chicago. That was before they started singing ballads and moved to AM radio. Kansas, Rush, yes. Journey, Sticks, Meatloaf, Led Zeppelin, Foreigner, the Doobie Brothers, and of course, Bruce Springsteen. For me, classical music was not Bach or Beethoven. It was Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, Dean Martin, Perry Como, Andy Williams, and Paul Anka. This was my father's music, but I enjoyed it too. My father was also a big fan of country music. Johnny Cash, Chris Christopherson, Willie Nelson, Loretta Lynn, Hank Williams, and Tom T. Hall were played regularly in the house. I'd never really heard much gospel music. For me, religious music was the stuff the priests sang in mass. It went something like this. Through him, with him, in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, forever and ever. Amen. This sounded something like the baptism scene at the end of The Godfather. All of this changed when my family converted to evangelicalism when I was in high school. We learned that Protestants actually sang. And they sang something called hymns. Before we knew it, my family was belting out the words to Amazing Grace, How Great Thou Art, The Old Rugged Cross, Great Is Thy Faithfulness, Be Thou My Vision, and Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. I also learned from my new evangelical youth pastor that my love of popular music and rock and roll had to go. He told me that this music did not bring glory to God. It was informed by a secular worldview that could undermine my faith, and in some cases, it contained direct messages from Satan. I was soon very conversant in all the problems associated with so-called secular music. I could show people how George Harrison subtly switched the lyrics from Hallelujah to Hare Krishna in My Sweet Lord. I learned that the Eagles song Hotel California was really about hell. You can check out anytime you like, 
but you can never leave. I knew all about the devil's use of backmasking to indoctrinate unsuspecting Christians. I knew that Led Zeppelin lead guitarist Jimmy Page was a member of Anton LaVey's Church of Satan. I vividly remember my mother buying us a table at a local flea market so we could sell all of our secular albums. I had gathered these albums over the years by carefully manipulating the rules of Columbia House Records. Some of you may remember Columbia House as the popular record company who enticed people to become members by offering 12 albums for a penny, and all you had to do was pay the cost of shipping and handling. Every year I would join again under a different name. I had no problem parting ways with these albums. In fact, I saw it as an act of faith. Those who came to the flea market couldn't figure out why we were selling perfectly fine albums. Some wondered if the records were damaged. Why were these kids unloading their copies of ELO's Out of the Blue or Sticks Pieces of Eight or the Bee Gees Saturday Night Fever at 50 cents a pop? My church also taught me that Christian rock was not a godly alternative to secular rock music. Christian rock may have Bible-based lyrics, but it was still the same old music of the devil. Our youth leaders told us story after story about the quote-unquote beat of the music and how that beat was somehow connected with the work of the devil. I bought it all, hook, line, and sinker. When I arrived at a Christian college in the mid-1980s, the musical collection I brought with me included Praise Strings, The Imperial's Greatest Hits, and Johnny Erickson's Spirit Wings. Frankly, I thought this music was appropriate for someone entering what I believe to be the monastic life of a Christian Bible college. As a new convert to evangelicalism, who was not raised in the evangelical subculture, I had no idea what life would be like at such a school. I had no idea that Christian college students were often just like the kids I went to high school with, except they prayed before meals and basketball practices and listened to Christian rock instead of the stuff I listened to before my conversion. My roommates, all deeply ensconced in the world of Christian rock music, later admitted that they thought I was some kind of fundamentalist. They not only arrived at college armed with albums by Petra, Striper, Rez Band, and DeGarmo and Key, but also smuggled in their copies of albums by Genesis, Ario Speedwagon, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and Chicago. At first, I thought they were a bunch of weak Christians and compromisers. Secular music was strictly forbidden at my college. During freshman orientation, the associate dean of students told us that he only listened to secular music in his car, and he did so in order to stay connected to the culture of the teenagers who came to the youth group he led at his local church. I thought this was kind of weird, but by this point in my religious journey, I also understood why this may have been necessary. I recall sitting in my first dorm meeting and hearing a guy named Dave say that he had gone to a Kenny Rogers concert over the summer. Someone in the room responded by asking Dave if he felt guilty about going. Absolutely not, Dave replied. By answering so strongly, Dave was announcing to the group that he was a rebel, ready to break the rules of fundamentalism by audaciously attending a country music concert. Again, I knew enough about fundamentalist culture by this point to know what was going on here, 
But I was also struck by the absurdity of this entire conversation. In some ways, this moment led to my journey away from the fundamentalism of my conversion experience, at least when it came to music. I finished Bible college, but not without my RA, quote unquote, writing me up multiple times for listening to secular music in my dorm room. I remember once arguing with my RA that Born to Run was actually a deeply Christian song because Bruce Springsteen was telling a story about the human condition, the sinfulness of human beings, the restlessness of men and women searching for an ultimate meaning in the world apart from God. Needless to say, he didn't buy it. As I look back, my experience at a Bible college actually made me more quote-unquote secular, at least in terms of how the fundamentalist culture warriors defined the term. Our guest today is Randall Stevens. Stevens was a reader and associate professor of history and American studies at Northumbria University in Newcastle in the United Kingdom from 2012 to 2018. In 2018, he accepted a position as associate professor of British and American studies at the University of Oslo. He is the author of The Fire Spreads, Holiness and Pentecostalism in the American South, and co-author of The Anointed Evangelical Truth in a Secular Age. Our interview today is based on his latest book, The Devil's Music, How Christians Inspired, Condemned, and Embraced Rock and Roll. Our guest today is Northumbria University professor Randall Stevens. The title of his new book is The Devil's Music, How Christians Inspired, Condemned, and Embraced Rock and Roll. Randall, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I was just telling you off air, we finished this book last night. Um, It was both a great sort of scholarly treatment of the intersection between Christianity and rock music, but also a lot of it, especially your chapters on Christian music, kind of took me a little bit down memory lane. So congratulations on producing a, a, a great book here. I hope it'll get a wide readership. Oh, thanks. I mean, I it is one thing with, with my editor at the press, she's really intent on part of the like reach for a more popular audience is to keep some of the kind of scholarly or historiographical arguments below the sure. line. So sure. in the notes. So I try, we try to do things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tell me a little bit about how you got interested in this project to begin with. I mean, I know there's a, I know some of your, uh, you've written a little bit about Pentecostalism and the holiness movement and that factors in, uh, a little bit to this yeah. book, but tell us, you know, how you ended up, uh, taking on a project about rock and roll. Well, I, I knew something, you know, having grown up in the Church of the Nazarene, I knew quite a bit about Christian rock music. Mm-hmm. And so I I naturally had, uh, you know, a, a sort of biographical link as far as right. that goes. And then at, when I was in grad school, to keep myself sane, I was a, a music reviewer and a, and a music editor So um, for a small magazine. And so I wrote a lot of reviews. And so I'm a huge music buff. Uh, so that played into it. But in the scholarly sense, it was when I was doing my first book on Pentecostalism in the South uh, that I saw in the last chapter, I was looking at all these different, you know, popular or, you know, well-known figures who were attached to Pentecostal churches. And it was really surprising to me how many early rock and rollers either went to a Pentecostal church or they were raised in one like Elvis Presley or Little Richard or Jerry Lee Lewis or Johnny Cash, B.B. Uh, King, just over and over again. And then a lot, quite a few lesser known uh, figures. But 
that seemed like in itself an interesting story to tell about the tongues speaking faith mm-hmm. and how that was linked uh, to uh, rock and roll. Yeah, you write actually, um, I think it's in, even in your first chapter, early in your first chapter, you write the culture of Southern Pentecostalism helped give birth to the new genre of rock and roll. Maybe you can explain for us that that connection, that link between Pentecostal religion, Pentecostal Christianity, and rock and roll. I mean, how do how are they similar? I mean, in what ways was Pentecostalism uh, important to the history of rock and roll? Yeah, I mean, part of it, you know, I had to be careful because I wanted to make sure it wasn't, you know, correlation isn't causation. Right. But the parallels were like the fact that um, Pentecostalism at least in its earliest days, and also the holiness movement, had a really had a great deal of strength in the American South and the former Confederacy. It also had, at least very early on in the early 20th century, an interracial component. But the but the most important thing for me was the the style of music that they played in Pentecostal services and also the style of worship. Um, you know, say in the 1930s and 1940s when some of these performers grew up. So when Johnny Cash went to a, a Church of God, um, Cleveland, Tennessee church that was in Dias, Arkansas, he experienced something similar as far as the worship goes and the music that um, Jerry Lee Lewis experienced when he grew up in Faraday, Louisiana, or Elvis Presley in Tupelo, Mississippi, and then also the, when the Presleys moved to Memphis, Tennessee, um, that it was a, a really animated style of, of worship, that it was kind of supercharged in ways that mainline and even other evangelical churches uh, weren't. So I tried to find quite a bit of, of sort of firsthand accounts of what those church services were like and then talk about how these um, early rock and rollers were influenced by that and find instances where they talk about their faith tradition and what they sort of took away from it. What about the actual sort of physical manifestations of religion in Pentecostalism? And I'm thinking here, too, about Elvis's kind of gyrations on the Ed Sullivan show and so forth. Uh, Was there any was there connections there as well, in addition to the kind of emotionalism of the worship? Yeah, there were. You know, Elvis even made he, he got burned because he he would make comments about how he was performing in the ways that um, some of these gospel quartets from his home church, his yeah. Pentecostal Assemblies of God Church perform. So like the, the Stamps Quartet or the Statesman. And he, he commented on that to a, a journalist in a, in a newspaper. He said, you know, I just largely perform like some of these quartets do, which is probably, a, it was an exaggeration yeah. in a way. But then immediately, um, all sorts of people in, within his denomination wrote to the headquarters of the church, which was in Springfield, Missouri, and said, please tell us that this young man is not a member of our church. We want nothing to do with him. This is uh, abhorrent and um, s- sinful, his his stage performance. So there's all, there's all this kind of interesting tension, yeah. you know, people being influenced by this movement, but then also being rejected by uh, the movement and still wanting to, but the performer still wanting to claim it, um, and then that being complicated. You just brought up the the issue of race, and and I can't help but remember, you know, uh, we just lost Chuck Berry, and there's when when Chuck Berry passed away, there's a lot of discussion about you know how rock and roll really is a a black art form, and that many of the 
the uh, white performers who first made uh, rock and roll palatable to white audiences were really just you know you know mimicking a a black art form. But you, you know, in your your comment there, you make it at least sound like it might be a little bit more nuanced than that. So can can you maybe go in a little bit more onto how uh, race plays a part in the early reception of rock and roll music, especially um, among Christians? Yeah, I mean, Chuck Berry is a really good example, even though he doesn't grow up within this tradition, but has roots within evangelicalism. And he, you know, he, he's a he's a black performer who's heavily influenced by country music. So, you know, if, if we, in just saying that it comes out of one sort of tradition um, or from, you know, the, the music of one race, it, it neglects that it, rock and roll was like this gumbo that, that had all these different components to it of white gospel and black gospel, country music, um, rhythm and blues. Uh, and it, it fused all these things together. So I try though to, I, I try to, to, to nuance that in a way when I talk about Elvis, because there probably is, there's a great deal of truth. I think about the, the issue of theft across the color line. Yeah. Um, but then if that, if you, if you sort of overplay that, I think it, it becomes problematic because, uh, the music was a little more complicated than that. Um, but the, but one of the, the issues that I found in, in the chapter that I worked on with uh, race was that, you know, there were all sorts of criticisms from the, the secular media, from uh, mainstream journalists about the denigrated character of rock and roll music, you know, saying things like it came out of the jungles of Africa. Mm-hmm. But the thing that you see within evangelical and especially white evangelical circles is um, talking about demon possession and shamanism and witchcraft. So they weave together their racial story with, you know, their this sort of imagined idea of what the mission field is for them. And for, I think, people of a certain age that grew up within um, evangelical or fundamentalist or Pentecostal churches, you know, you, you were bombarded with that message as a child or a teenager, that rock music is like witchcraft. It comes out of the, the, um, the, the pagan jungles of the Southern hemisphere. Uh, and I knew about that, you know, from hearing it when I was a kid, but it was interesting to see this kind of, um, rhetoric used to such powerful effect in the 1950s and the early 1960s. You have an entire chapter on the Beatles and their reception into, uh, into American culture uh, and your, your chapter begins with the Beatles' 1966 uh, American tour. Um, this is a very controversial tour for reasons I'll let you explain. Um, tell us a little bit about the controversy behind the 1966 uh, Beatles' American tour, and then sort of what, the, what did this controversy uh, represent in terms of the way uh, Christians responded and reacted to... Uh, um, rock and roll music. Yeah. So, I mean, there was an interesting connection there too with the Beatles because the Beatles were so heavily influenced by that first generation of rock and rollers. In some ways they were mimics. Uh, They, they were, they were, you know, performing the songs of little Richard and Elvis Mm. and Chuck Berry. So exactly, but also with their own um, uh, flavor to it. But in 1966, as they get ready to go on this tour in the United States, um, word gets out about this interview that John Lennon um, of the Beatles does with Maureen Cleave, 
uh, with the London Evening uh, Standard. And in that interview, Lennon said that the Beatles had become more popular than Jesus Christ mm-hmm. for teenagers, which really didn't amount to much of anything in, in uh, what was becoming a kind of post-Christian Britain. It didn't really make uh, much headway. But then when it was reported in the United States, it just generated a great deal of reaction. And it, I also talk about this in in, um, in parallel to the um, infamous 1966 cover story in Time magazine uh, about the God is dead theology and all these fears that evangelical parents and pastors and uh, seminary professors and others have about the decline of Christianity in the 1960s combined with secularism and with these pop cultural phenomenons that that have got, pop cultural phenomenon that's gotten out of control. Um, and the Beatles embody a lot of this, especially because of Lennon's comment mm-hmm. and uh, some other things that they say uh, about religion. Yeah. It, one of my favorite parts in that chapter is your, I don't know, maybe it's about a three or four or five paragraph discussion, which I loved about, about the Beatles hair. Uh, tell yeah. us why the Beatles hair was such a big issue for Christians in uh, the 1960s. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny, especially now, because by the 1970s, um, you know, this was just there was nothing to having kind of bowl cut like that, a sort of pudding bowl haircut or a page boy haircut. But in 1963 and 1964, it was it was subversive. Uh, You know, if the standard is sort of the buzz cut or the flat top, then this is wild hair that that is sort of confusing um, gender norms. There was a great quote I found from Betty Friedan, um, the, one of the leaders of second wave feminism, and she was talking about how the Beatles uh, had, were kind of like a middle finger in a way yeah. um, to the what she called the masculine mystique, so that they were challenging these ideas of what it meant to be uh, masculine with their long hair. So in, in conservative Christian publications, over and over again, in the, in the mid uh, 1960s, you see all this hand wringing about the Beatles and their haircuts and their tight Edwardian suits. But it, the biggest concern for these believers is that um, the Beatles just create all this sort of chaos and almost religious devotion uh, in in young people that are in their churches. But I found even in the the Southern Baptist Convention, a, a Baptist church in North Carolina that had kicked out a couple young men who had long hair. And the the hilarious thing was the person who reported the story said, we've had people who were adulterers, drunkards, none of them got kicked out, but <laughs> long hair. these young people with long hair, with Beatles style haircut, yeah, yeah. Uh, they get the boot. Now this was the Beatles style, the younger Beatles, right? This was the kind of, you know, it, it, where I grew up, it was just called kind of an old fashioned bowl cut. You know, later, right. la- later they developed these kind of wild, kind of hippie-like kind of hairdos. But we're talking about that earlier cut, even you know, which yeah. which, which some might see as being kind of clean cut. And yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. But also, I think at the time, which one of the Three Stooges, Mo? I think yeah, it's yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's like the Mo haircut. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, how could there be anything wrong with the Mo haircut? Anyway, um, but I think there's still a lot of interesting work for people to do about. Um, that kind of material culture or yeah. fashion and what that said about uh, youth, you know, or right. decorum. Right. 
Now, um, sticking here in the 1960s, uh, you know, you you have this uh, uh, another chapter where you kind of frame the birth of uh, what is commonly referred to as Jesus Rock, and you set this up into the larger sort of cultural milieu of uh, what a lot of cultural critics of the day called the generational divide, right? That's taking place yeah. um, uh, in the 1960s. Um, what was the generational divide and what is the relationship then between this so-called uh, larger trend, the generational divide in the culture? And then how's that connected with the rise of uh, Christian rock or Jesus rock music? Yeah, so the I mean, it, it makes sense from a different demographic point of view, uh, because the baby boom generation was so large that it's there is something, something that almost seems inevitable that there would be these controversies about the generation gap and the, the growing distance between um, grandparents and parents and their and their children and their grandchildren. And you you see this starting in the mid-1960s all over um, national newspapers yeah. and magazines like Life Magazine has cover stories about it. But then that is also echoed within evangelical publications. So Christianity Today is writing about it. Um, a publication called Home Life, which is uh, Baptist, and then there are Methodists who are uh, worried about this. Um, that, that they, the fear that they're going to be that they're losing their children, and part of that is is tied in with the the bit that's about the Beatles. But that's happening at the same time that there are these early experiments with playing um, popular music, uh, whether it's kind of Beatles style Mersey beat or more folk music. Um, or even kind of garage rock, early experimentations with that music, but coupled with just um, avowedly uh, Christian lyrics. Like one of the first of these bands was called the Crusaders, mm -hmm. which kind of sounded like a bad version of the association. Yeah. Uh, but they were making an attempt at, you know, this, this kind of new thing, even if it was clumsy. That also happens at the same time that um, after Vatican II, that Catholics start exper uh, experimenting with folk masses. So um, there's just all this kind of um, creative thinking about what uh, religious music is, you know, which looking back on it, it is it is pretty radical. It seems, in, you know, now when we hear it, it sounds kind of ridiculous and, and sometimes cringeworthy. But yeah, um, there it, it really was an interesting kind of concession that some um, adults were willing to make, uh, of course, it was controversial still to have this kind of music played. Yeah. But then you have cropping up coffee shops and, uh, you know, uh, Christian hangouts for, for teenagers where this music is played. And uh, then from there, festivals and then uh, Christian music labels um, and then a whole kind of industry that yeah. crops up around yeah. it. You mentioned Randall. Uh, you mentioned Randall, the Crusaders, uh, you know, kind of sound like the association. Uh at one point in the book, you make a few more of those comparisons. Can you remember any of those? I'd love to have our listeners here. You know, if you like X group as a secular group, you might like this group as a Christian group. I mean, do you remember yeah. some of those? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like um, for me as a, as a youngster, I, I was obsessed with the Beatles. And so yeah. um, I really got into Phil Keggy, which if you if you listen okay. to Phil Keggy's stuff in the early 70s, it is just kind of spot on. Um, it sounds just like Paul McCartney. It, yeah, it, it yeah. sounds like the very early pre-Wings um, Paul McCartney solo uh, material. But there are other ones too. Um, 
like the one of these other early bands was called Mind Garage, and it's just so obviously a kind of acid rock. Yeah. Um, uh, sort of loud, lots of feedback, heavy distortion. It, it, maybe it sounds a little bit like Vanilla Fudge. Yeah. Um, but that was the case, you know, with a lot of sort of uh, sort of second tier or third tier rock bands. Yeah. Um, which, in a way, that's really what Christian rock was. Right. Right. So, even within a secular sense, you'd you'd have you know band X. Yeah. Uh, that, that sound a lot like another one. Like if you listen to the the Rhino Records Nuggets um, compilations all these groups kind of sound like someone else because they're really sort of anonymous right. uh, rock groups at the time. Yeah, I think you also mentioned second, was it second chapter of Acts with Queen, I think was the yes. comparison, you know. Yeah. I, I love that section. Drew, you had a follow-up on yeah. this. Well, I mean, I, it, it's funny that you bring that up because as I was discussing this episode with my wife, I didn't I didn't grow up in this in this musical culture, but my wife did, and 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 she immediately started reciting the if you like Pearl Jam, then oh yeah, you, you know you'll listen to yeah. Third Day. Do you know Randall? Do you know Randall? Did they market it like that? Yeah, they well they they at least they did by the nineteen eighties. Yeah, and I yeah. think probably by the seventies as well. Because because the idea is you want to you want to sort of steer youngsters away from music that's questionable or has yeah. lyrics about smoking pot or right, you know right. um, premarital sex or whatever, and so. You're, you know, it's it's like luring them right. uh, with uh, sh- sugary sweets that are labeled uh, Jesus. It's yeah. almost like the uh, it's almost like the kind of you know the brand name item and the generic item. You yeah. know, like if you if you like Advil, take you <laughs> yeah. know yeah. CVS's you know generic. Drew, <laughs> yeah. you had a, a follow, but, but, but if it follows up on yeah. the same point, yeah, um, you know, is this all it is? Is Jesus Rock just like a bad ripoff of of the music of the time, or is there something more to it? No, I, I think there really is something more to some of it, you know, and um, I think that Larry Norman would be a good example of that. I think that uh, who, who did uh, sort of folky rock. I think that um, Andre Crouch, I think that'd be pretty indisputable. Yeah. I mean, it, there's also sort of a, the issue here of how secular musicians start to shade into Christian artists and sort of the question of like, where does the genre really begin and end? So, you know, by the late uh, 70s, Bob Dylan has a he does a, a you know three uh, Christian albums that are explicitly Christian. Um, Billy Preston, who played with the Beatles, does uh, gospel music and kind of gospel rock in the 1970s. And there's quite a few other sort of uh, versions of that. So um, you know even what we sort of define, or you know in the in the modern sense, like the band U2 or right. Sufjan Stevens um, or quite a few others, they would sort of straddle these um sort of zones that we kind of think of yeah yeah um our time's just about up here randall this has been great i got one more question for you though uh towards the end of your book you talk a little bit about this guy bob larson i had completely forgot yeah. about this guy yeah. <laughs> uh you know uh, he, he haunted my like early evangelical teenage years you know because yes. of his criticism of of um of uh christian rock music who was bob larson and why is he sort of important to to your story well, he was he he's really interesting because he's like there's a there are a few of these characters that are like this. David Noble is another one. Yeah. Sketch Erickson, they're kind of like anti rock and roll uh, entrepreneurs within the within the evangelical fold. They they have a ready audience because there are plenty of people who are uh, prepared for this message about the evils of rock music. 
But in the case of, of Bob Larson, um, I found some of the stuff at the very end of the research, like uh, Cornerstone Magazine, I think in the early 1990s, did a kind of expose on Larson. Because you'll see sort of in Larson's biography, he'll talk about how he was in a rock band and he wrote, you know, X number of songs right. and he's familiar with this world. But uh, it was a story that, you know, never was really confirmed or or verified. And then he, he used that um, that that sort of aspect of his his life and career to pitch uh, books that he wrote. He did um, records that were humorous that had some of the themes. He also did records that had sermons on them about rock and roll. And he toured all over the country. And then in, in more you know, recent decades, he's, he's um, now uh, gotten into exorcism okay. and uh, talking about demon possession. So he, he sort of has moved from, from one fad to another uh, like that. But now, some of these characters are just fascinating. I can't remember. Did Larson – he was opposed to, to um, Christian rock too, right? Or no? He was, and then eventually he he uh, had a, a sort of a turned around on that, which quite a few people did in the 1980s. Right, right. So Falwell even, is another great example yeah. you talk about in the book. Yeah, exactly. Falwell does. Uh, David Wilkerson does, even though he later uh, backpedals on that. Right, right. Once you go over to the other side, you can always go back again and say, yeah. oh, okay. <laughs> that's right. <Yeah. laughs> that's right. Hey, Randall, thanks, this, thanks for taking the time uh, to talk with us today again. Uh, the book is The Devil's Music, How Christians Inspired, Condemned, and Embraced Rock and Roll, hot off the press with Harvard University Press. Um, Randall, how do we, you know, do you have a website or does the book have a website? How do we How do we learn more yeah. about the book? Where can we find the book? Um, where can we yeah. find more about you? Well, that's. I'm glad you asked that because I created in, in the last stages of it, as I was doing the index especially, which is such a bummer to do. Yeah, uh, I I created a very long Spotify playlist, which Harvard has graciously put on the landing page for the book. So if you searched Harvard okay. and then the name of the book, uh, there's a Spotify playlist. So you can listen to songs all the way back to uh, the 1950s, and then they oh, go yes. up to the relative presence that the present that that's uh, a lot of the songs that I talked about in there. Hey, thanks, Randall, so much for taking the time. I know you're in England. So uh, we really appreciate you uh, with the yeah. long distance call. It's uh, probably almost Thanks bedtime so much there. For me. Yeah, yeah, good. And um, and best of best wishes on your move up to Norway. Right, you're heading up there yeah. uh, for a new job in the fall. Is that? Uh, we're moving in the middle of summer, so I'll start in August. Okay. which we're really looking forward to it. Great, great. Well, good luck with that. And again, thanks for being on. Have a great day. Yeah, thank you. Drew, this is a great book. I hope that people will get out and read this, especially, I mean, you don't even have to kind of be from the kind of evangelical world. Uh, some of the chapters are on Christian rock and kind of give, Randall gives this kind of insider look of the evangelical subculture, but the early chapters are just about like straight rock and roll. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, I was, until I was familiar with Randall's work, I had no idea that, you know, all these people were Pentecostals like Johnny Cash, Elvis, you know? Um, so it's, it's the first thing I've read that kind of really takes the religious dimensions of rock and roll music seriously. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's a really, I think, a, a really fascinating insight. Again, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, 
You know, when I arrived on campus as an 18 year old in Messiah, Christian rock was new to me and I didn't yeah. get it, you know, yeah. and I tried to get it and I tried to engage with it and I learned some more about it. But yeah. I, I, I mean, I think this is a, an important kind of yeah. insight into a subculture that in other places bleeds through, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. evangelical subculture is important, an important part of the American fabric, especially yeah. in the 20th and, and, and now 21st century. So this is a, this yeah. is a cool, cool little window into something that for, even for some of us Christians, you know, we don't necessarily engage yeah. with. In my commentary, you know, I talked about my experience with this. You know, I feel like in my life, I do, I have listened to Christian music, Christian contemporary music, CCM as they call it. I, I feel though, like I had this kind of, I kind of jumped over it. Like I, I kind of had this really, you know, passion for kind of popular music, kind of album rock, classic rock. And then I went through this brief moment in the early evangelical years of my life, you know, where I just was like nothing, right? It's all sinful. And then like, I didn't like make the segue into Christian music. I just kind of went right back mm-hmm. and said, you know, Springsteen's not bad or, <laughs> yeah. you know, this stuff, you know, is, is, and, and I, I never had this kind of, uh, I was very much aware of it. Like all my friends listen to Petra and Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith and, you know, all these classic 80, you know, Keith Green, all these classic 80 Christian artists. But, you know, I was never kind of obsessed, obsessed by it. And I very rarely would tune into, um, we had a, we had a, um, there was a big, even around here, there's a big Christian radio station in Lancaster. I can't remember the call letters right now that. JTL, WJTL, you know, I, I, I seldom listen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, Randall is such a creative guy. You know, this book is, this book just is, is very, very creative in its interpretive kind of moves that it makes. But, um, you know, for a while he's been right. He's been doing these, I call them the Randall Stevens collection. He takes a classic book or a baseball card and puts a famous historian on the baseball card, or he takes one of those books from the library of America and changes it to some sort of contemporary evangelical figure. So if you want to see some of his uh, hilarious Photoshop work, go on the way of improvement leads home blog and search the Randall Stevens collection. And you can see all of his uh, very, very funny kind of creations, mostly baseball cards. And some of you might remember those kind of black covered library of America books, you know, Mark Twain or, or, um, or Abraham Lincoln's writings and speeches, those kinds of things. So, so he's a very, very, very creative kind of historian. And really kind of, if you follow him on social media, he's a very fun guy to follow. Well, Drew, I think that wraps it up for us today. And I think that wraps up season four, doesn't it? We have a few things this summer. We're going to tease you with a few special episodes, but yeah, that's the end of, that's the end of season four. We'll be back in the fall with season five. We'll have, uh, We'll have some new people on board. We're gonna, yep. you know, we're go- we're we'll have one more chance to work with Josh for our, one of our special episodes. But we will be losing Josh as he graduates, gets married, goes on to bigger and better things. But and he's uh, he told me today he may already have a job lined yeah, up. Well, so, he's, yeah, he's 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 definitely on his way on the up and up. He I did think such he got wonderful the, work for us. I think there would be no way he would have landed this job if it wasn't if he didn't have the way of improving his home podcast on his resume. Oh, I mean, I think I mean we are the biggest thing. Yeah, I think that's that sealed it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, but we're, we 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 we're, we are excited though for for season 5. We've got some some yeah. guests already percolating, so And we have a new good. uh we'll have a new studio producer, Abby LaBianca, who uh is with us today. 
but we'll introduce her formally at the beginning of uh, beginning of officially right at the beginning of season five and look for her. We'll do a little little bio on her on yeah. the blog too. And of course, our intern will still be with us. And Nilsa is our intern. She's with us today. You know, she made a few appearances this season. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, she's still working hard as an intern. You know, we're trying not to work her too hard because she is interning for free. But uh, you know. She doesn't have a bank account yet, so she's two because she's two, so yeah. we can't quite pay her yet, you know. So anyway, <laughs> and child labor laws, but you know that <laughs> this has this has been a great, great season. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, we hope you'll continue to connect with us on Twitter, on Facebook, download episodes, review our episodes at iTunes, and especially if you enjoyed this season, please consider supporting us on our patrons page so we can keep bringing you quality podcasting. And in the meantime, may your way of improvement always lead home this has been a production of the wave improvement leads home a blog dedicated to reflection to the intersection of american history religion politics and academic life visit us at thewaveimprovement.com the wave improvement leads home is a member of the recorded history podcast network check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net if you want to support our efforts please rate and review us on itunes stitcher or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. The podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Randall Stevens. Our studio producer is Josh Lowry. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermeling, and your host is John Fia.